Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Now here at the Bureau, we spend our time digging up, unearthing, dusting down, bringing back into the light half-remembered lost countercultural stories than we often hear about the British underground alternative scene of the 60s and 50s and 70s. But our roots actually lie in the Soviet Union. Our big project, the X-Ray Audio Project, was dedicated to the amazing story of forbidden music cut onto X-rays in the Cold War era in the Soviet Union is where we started. And so I'm very pleased that we are going back for a visit there today. Was there a counterculture in the Soviet Union? Was there youth culture in the Soviet Union? Was that possible under such a repressive regime? It was. We heard a few episodes ago from Terya Tomitsu about the Soviet hippie movement. And today we are welcoming a very special guest who's going to walk us through a quick survey of the counterculture in the Soviet Union. He is the person who, as far as I'm aware, wrote first of all about X-Ray Records in his wonderful book, Back in the USSR, The True Story of Rock in Russia. I think that was back in the 80s. And that's a wonderful survey of the way that the Russian rock bands who emerged in the 70s and 80s contributed in some way to the cultural upheaval of Perestroika. He also wrote a couple of years ago another wonderful survey, Subkultura, uh, the story of Russian and Soviet subcultures. He is, and was, and is a broadcaster and a DJ, a kind of Soviet John Peel, always bringing new music to the masses, a cultural trader, as I might say in Russia. He has been and remains an academic, a writer, a broadcaster, I'd say somewhat of a provocateur as well. He is an old friend. He helped us immensely with the X-Ray Audio Project. And I'm very pleased to welcome him here today, Artemy Trotsky. And the family man. And the family man. That's what they always <laughs> say on Twitter, isn't it? I was thinking that on the way here. They always say, like, I am a oligarch, arms trader, and proud dad. Uh, so welcome, Art. Thank you. It's very nice to see you here, back here after all this time. For anybody who doesn't know who you are, let's have a brief bio. Where were you born and when? I was born in 1955 in the city of Yaroslavl, which is a, well, smaller scale city, 300 kilometers, which is like 200 miles north of Moscow. But I've only spent a few months there, and then I was moved to Moscow. So I also may be considered a Muscovite, although I lived in Prague for five years, between 63 and 68. And I also lived in London for almost one year in 89 and 1990. And, uh, well, I've started uh, the first disco in Moscow at the Moscow State University in 1972 when I was only 17. No, we, we, we better stop right there because that's uh, we've already gone in quite deep. But the first thing you said, which was interesting, is that you spent time in Prague in the sixties when you were a kid. So I'm assuming from that that your parents, in some ways, were part of that class of Soviet citizens who were allowed to travel abroad, if not to the West. Yes, well, I think that uh, my parents, my dad in particular, he did belong to the kind of lower, uh, lower uh, grade Soviet nomenclature. He was uh, a political scientist, uh, an historian, and uh, he was sent uh, to Prague uh, because uh, uh, it was Prague where the main 
magazine for uh, communist and socialist uh, intellectual <laughs> research was uh, was uh, situated so uh, the magazine was called problems of peace and socialism and my father worked there uh, in the latin american section and he was a very rare case of a soviet uh, new left a soviet kind of trotskyite lefty he was friends with i mean real friends he knew him personally a uh, friend of Che Guevara wow. and Fidel Castro. He knew them. Did and, you meet them? Uh, no, I've never met them. Uh, but I've met, uh, thanks to my father, I've met some other interesting Latin American people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, he even stayed at our place when he once came to Moscow for a film festival. <laughs> uh, so you got a very, I mean, it may still have been in that kind of broad Eastern Bloc communist uh, part of Europe, but you did get exposure then outside Russia, outside the the main bulk of the Soviet Union when you were a kid. So that must have opened up your eyes a bit. Yes, well, this has uh, helped me a great deal because uh, in Prague we've been living in an international community and uh, thanks uh, to my schoolmates from France and from Italy, also belong to those uh, kind of communist uh, families I first heard rock music and uh, of course I was much more exposed uh, to the cultural information that I needed mm. and I became uh, a dedicated rock fan since the age of eight I'm afraid Why? in, what, what in, 19, in 1963 uh, in the autumn, uh, we went to, uh, on holidays uh, to a, a children's camp, and uh, my French friends, uh, they've brought some records there, some singles by uh, the Beatles and Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones and some French artists of the same kind uh, of that period. And I love this music from, uh, from the first hearing. <laughs> And uh, then I started to learn English myself. I'm self-taught. I, I don't have any uh, professional education in English language. I've, I, I, I've studied, studied English by translating songs by the Beatles. I mean, I've, I've listened to records and I and I put English lyrics uh, there, you know, just phonetically, and then I try to translate them, and then sometimes I've also got magazines, and this is how I've learned English. You taught yourself English through rock and roll in yeah. some ways, right? It's interesting, isn't it, because uh, obviously for anybody who grew up here, um, particularly in recent decades, they've got absolutely no idea what that was like to be born and grow up in the Soviet Union in the 60s. Were you aware at the time when you're in Prague, you're listening to rock and roll records and maybe, you know, you're mingling with this international community. Were you aware at the time that this was a bit bit rare and a bit of a privilege possibly for a typical Soviet kid? Well, I didn't think about it mm. at all. Uh, but, uh, well, the situation in the Czech Republic, well, then Czechoslovakia, a non-existent country now, it was it was pretty liberal. They've had uh, live uh, music rock clubs there, 
They had some records on sale, mostly by local bands, but also sometimes uh, imported rock records. And uh, when I returned to Moscow, and this was in the spring of 1968, shortly before uh, the Soviet invasion to Czechoslovakia in August 68. When I returned to Moscow, of course, I found the situation there completely different. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the first couple of years uh, of my living in Moscow, I was very depressed because I didn't have friends. Uh, I was writing letters to my pen friends, you know, from Prague, uh, from Italy, from uh, Canada and so on. Uh, but gradually, step by step, I have met, uh, you know, some uh, kindred spirits. I mean, right. you know, I saw, I suddenly started to see long-haired <laughs> guys and 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 uh, trendy uh, girls uh, in the streets of Moscow, and I spoke with them, and and this is how right. I I got involved in the local scene. Also, found out that uh, yes, there are also rock concerts in in Moscow. Uh, not as uh, interesting as as in the Czech Republic because at that time, late 60s, early 70s, all uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, well, then Leningrad, of course, bands, they've been playing only cover versions of their favorite Beatles and Stones or <laughs> Cream songs. Uh, but, you know, this is how I got involved with the local scene. And uh, when I graduated from school and became a student, I started this first disco in Moscow where I played vinyl records. Uh, These are records that you brought back from um, Czechoslovakia? I've, I've brought uh, some records from, uh, from Prague, but also, of course, uh, I became very much involved in the Moscow black market. Right, we'll talk about that in a was, second. Uh, which was an interesting phenomenon. Sure, so, I mean, the background for this, for anybody who doesn't know, obviously, is, is that, you know, all culture is censored and restricted in the Soviet Union. I mean, it had got a bit easier in the 60s in the kind of Khrushchev-Thor era, and then Brezhnev came back, it sort of toughened up a bit. I mean, you talked about the Soviet invasion of, of Czechoslovakia in 68. That was partly, wasn't it, because of the liberalisation that was going on in, in Czechoslovakia and Prague, you know, and... Uh, and the sort of Soviets went in to kind of nip that in the bud. Yes, they wanted to build the so-called socialism with a human face in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, this bright idea has failed <laughs> because of uh, brotherly help from uh, the mighty mm. Soviet Union. So um, you met some fellow travelers, some fellow souls in Moscow. Interestingly, um, a couple of months ago, we had uh, Terya Tamitsu, I think you've maybe come across, who made the f documentary Soviet Hippies. Yes, um, yes, I, I've seen this film, yeah. yeah. So, of course, I mean, that was a bit of an eye-opener for us anyway, the notion that there were hippies in Moscow. But, of course, there were. There was an underground even then, right? Even, if it was, even in the tough years, there was always some sort of underground going on, wasn't there? Well, I think that we've had uh, underground in Russia all the time. It, it's omnipresent. I mean, in the 19th century, we've also had the nihilistic underground. And uh, then, of course, in the beginning of the 20th century, we've had this decadent and futuristic underground. And uh, in even in the toughest of times, I mean, you know, the re really uh, scary 
and maximum cruel time of Stalin there was uh, there was some underground activities I mean there were there was a youth political underground uh, which uh, unfortunately was uh, very very badly repressed and uh, some m members of this underground still teen teenagers have been executed even we don't hear so much to death. We don't hear so much about that. I mean, maybe you could tell, yeah, us, tell yeah. us a little it's bit a, more about that. It's a very, very little known story which needs a lot of investigation. But unfortunately, in the contemporary Russian, no one is interested in investigating this story because, uh, on one hand, uh, uh, these uh, anti-Stalinist uh, circles. Krushki circles, they were known. They've been all uh, Leninist, they've been, or Trotsky, they were lefties. So uh, the uh, traditional uh, liberal Democrats, they are not interested in, in that because they are lefties. And uh, the uh, contemporary Russian so-called lefties, you know, the communists, are all Stalinists, so, so therefore they also don't want right. to, to talk about anti-Stalinist underground. And these were young people who, uh, despite the terrifying culture at the time, were still able to, to or attempting to make some sort of uh, countercultural protest. Oh yes, we are talking about the famous Stilagi here. Mm. Yes, the swing Jugend mm. of of the Soviet Union. Yes, Stilagi. Stilagi were born uh, out of, uh, uh, well, they were like uh, the children of World War II when, as uh, some people still remember, Soviet Union, United States of America and Britain have been allies. And uh, in the 40s, uh, during the war and uh, in the first couple of years after the war, there's been a plenty of Western culture available in the Soviet Union. Uh, American clothes, American records, American and British films were shown in uh, Soviet theaters and they've been hugely popular with uh, the trendy young people. And then of course in 1948, uh, Churchill and Stalin have started uh, the Cold War and the Iron Curtain fell down but uh, you know some youngsters they wanted uh, the party to be continued and they kept listening to big bands to swing uh, jazz and uh, they copied American uh, clothes style and they were uh, calling themselves uh, Stilagi, and although, although uh, ideologically they were not charged, mm. I mean, you know, they didn't care about capitalism, socialism, whatever. They just wanted to dance, they wanted to, to look cool and, and to have fun. Mm. So therefore, uh, Stilagi were not as... Uh, severely prosecuted uh, as, uh, you know, as the political underground kids. I mean, uh, if anybody else... But still, but still they were, they were uh, uh, ridiculed in the Soviet press and uh, there's, well, they've been, uh, they've been uh, 
a target, a target of all kinds of uh, of ideological condemnation. If people want to know more about that, Valery Todorovsky's film Still Yogi, which is translated as hipsters, which is kind of all right, isn't it? Yeah, Follow, yeah, followers yeah. of fashion. Yeah, it's okay, and the film is good. The, the film's film is good. good. It's well, it's a fantasy film. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's not a historical film, but it catches uh, the spirit maybe of the times. It, it does. In some way. It does, and it, it captures the spirit. It captures the style and. Uh, uh, Todorovsky is a friend of mine, and I'm a big, a big fan of his films in general. And it's like a Baz Luhrmann film, isn't it? It's a musical, yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's it, like uh, it's like La La Land uh, mm. with a political touch. It is, yeah. But the interestingly, for us, you know, talking to you, but also talking to some old guys in. Russia in the last couple of years, who were um, Stelyagi, perhaps, and then some people who weren't, uh, they were sort of looked down on by the intelligentsia as well, not just by the kind of party types, because they were seen as, in some ways, by some people, as being rather superficial, shallow, you know, just interested in dancing and drinking. But that's what, you know, young people do, you know. Yeah, that's absolutely true. My parents were like this. I mean, uh, generation-wise, they've they belong to the Stilegi generation, but they were young intellectuals studying at the historical faculty of the Moscow State University, and they despised Stilegi for exactly being uh, too apolitical, uh, ignorant of uh, of serious literature, ideology, and so on. I mean, they thought that, you know, they're just silly kids uh, who know nothing in life except for drinking, dancing, and, uh, and having a good time. So, I mean, uh, we're going to come back to music in a second, but just before we do, I'd like just to hear a little bit more about not the Stilyagi, but these other people that you referred to. This is the young, politically motivated underground who were taking a very brave stance. I mean, just tell us, you said this forgotten story, uh, but just tell us about those people. Well, uh We've had about, uh, well, I have counted about 30 to 40 underground uh, student uh, organizations which existed in the Soviet Union from the late 40s uh, till, well, till more or less Stalin's death in 1953. And they existed not only in Moscow and Leningrad, but also in Voronezh and uh, Stalingrad and many smaller cities of uh, the Soviet Union. In uh, some areas of the Soviet Union, they've uh, they've also had a nationalistic uh, flavor to them, like in the Baltic Soviet republics or in Belarus and the Ukraine. Uh, but uh, their mainstream uh, ideology was uh, Marxism, and uh, their main message was that Stalin is not a communist. He's not a true communist. He's not a Marxist, and Stalinism is uh, is a, a awful fascist mutation of socialist ideas. A perversion of so, Marx, in fact. Yes. So they've been all for Lenin, but all against uh, Stalin. This was, uh, this was their common ideology. And they were very young kids. I mean, uh, they were uh, school kids of the uh, older grades or, 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 or university and college students. Mm. 
And uh, some of them, well, most of these organizations, they have been uh, detected by the KGB and put to jail, including school kids. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing things. Uh, they, they've put school kids to jail. And these school kids, they were worrying that they are not having their lessons. And they asked uh, their uh, uh, roommates or checkmates at the prison, could they, could they please uh, teach them uh, <laughs> some mathematics? Very touching. And, and some of them have been killed. Hmm. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's really is uh, a tragic story and tragically underinvestigated. I mean, one of many many uh, tragedies from that time, and that was through into the 1960s, was it? Well, uh, I think I think uh, uh, most of those kids they have been uh, amnested. He, uh, right after Stalin died because right. they were like 17, 18. Uh, there were also girls among them. So they were among the first uh, to uh, uh, be put under amnesty when Khrushchev came to power. So um, Khrushchev comes to power. There's the cultural thaw. Um, but to return to you and back to Moscow in the late 60s and just before um, you know you really get going, Brezhnev's back in, they sort of pressure's on again, isn't it, somewhat? But this is the time when you're meeting fellow like-minded uh, souls who grew their hair, wear cool clothes. And Moscow wasn't just this grey place that it was kind of projected to be here. It was quite swinging in some ways, wasn't it? Well, uh, of course, <laughs> uh, if you compare it to, to swinging London and Carnaby Street and so on, it was uh, it was much more grey. But uh, but still, if if you knew right places and right people, you can uh, one could have uh, some fun in Moscow, like uh, at. Uh, at those underground rock concerts or at my disco mm -hmm. which existed for two years from 72 till 74. So you've come back from uh, Czech Republic, you've got a very cool record collection by comparison with many of your peers. You like music, you know about music and stuff, so how did you get to set up this this disco as you call it? Well I think I think uh, it has started because of my involvement in the black market and in the black market of course well the black market is not really a market it's not a place with stalls and everything black market is a network mm -hmm. it's a network of, of of people who buy sell and swap things and the main uh, items circulating in this black market were a clothes like jeans and all kinds of trendy Western style clothes, B, uh, American cigarettes, Marlboros and Kent's and uh, Winston's and so on, uh, C, hard currency, which was the riskiest business of all, and D, and this was where I was, of course, involved, uh, Western records. And Western Records, you know, new albums, uh, well, the singles were almost not on sale there because, uh, well, there was no singles seen in, in the Soviet Union. New albums by, uh, well, the Beatles and this 
the Rolling Stones and later Jimi Hendrix and Frank Zappa and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and The Doors and so on. And they costed a fortune. Uh, so it was quite difficult to buy these records. Uh, you know, what I've done is I usually swapped right. these records, uh, but uh, because, uh, because of that uh, black market music community, I've met uh, some guys uh, who, uh, well, who like the stories that I told them. I mean, all uh, average music lovers, uh, underground music lovers in the Soviet Union at that time, many of them didn't speak English at all and they did not have any information, you know, all they had were records. So they knew the names of the musicians, but they didn't know, you know, their stories, they didn't know, you know, the whole context of, uh, of rock music. And I was one of the very few maybe the only who could tell them stories. Okay, yes, I said, yes, this is Jet Trotal. Jet Trotal is Ian Anderson on flute and so on. And blah, blah, started to tell them the story of Jet Trotal or, uh, you know, whoever, Captain Beefheart. And uh, they asked me, you know, why don't I do lectures about, uh, about music? Why wouldn't I play these records? And then I said, well, there is a form like that. It's called discotheques. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I saw them and I was there at, at, at discotheques in Prague. Uh, but, you know, they don't really tell stories. They play records and, and, and kids dance to them. But I can make a hybrid disco. And this is, was exactly what I've done. Uh, in the first part of this uh, disco, in the kind of intellectual part i i've i've told the story of of certain particular band i remember the first band uh, that uh, i played there uh, was my favorite band of uh, that period and they were king crimson so i told a story about king crimson and i will also show slides made from album covers and 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 photos from magazines and so on and this has lasted for one hour and then for remaining two, three hours, I just played uh, uh, music to dance too. So, That's funny because so when this we, is how my disco looked. When we did that uh, event together in Tel Aviv with the music of art, you did the same thing. I remember you, you, you gave a sort of lecture about the Soviet uh, underground and then you played the <laughs> tunes afterwards and everybody danced. Yeah, 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 exactly. Good, I'm st glad that you're still at it. But um, that's, that's funny. So you invented a form there, uh, a particular form, the kind of academic disco. Yes, well, uh, I wouldn't say it was uh, it was only my invention. As I said, uh, it was a popular demand. Mm. Uh, you know, the kids wanted wanted to have information about sure. their beloved musics, mm. and and I said, okay, well, I can do this. Right. So I guess I mean it's a little bit like I'm assuming. In the age of the internet and the YouTube, none of this stuff is relevant, of course, anymore. But at that time. A bit like we thought here, or the way that Hollywood stars were thought of is here. I guess these musicians from this far-off Western land who were making this music would have seemed like some mythological creatures or something. And so you were able to actually flesh that out a little bit and tell their stories, right? 
Yes, well, I think uh, I think this was so, and uh, of course, before uh, before the VHS video appeared, uh, American and British films have been far less known to train the young Russians than music, because uh, in order in order to see a movie, you have to go to a movie theater right. and very few Western films were shown in the Soviet Union. And usually the films that were shown, they were like French comedies or Italian comedies, things like that. So almost no American films have been shown and no serious British films have been shown. And uh, therefore, it was music that uh, that became more important than uh, than Hollywood or Monty Python uh, or things like that in the Soviet Union. You know, the film era started uh, with the VHS. Uh, you know, then then we all could see at last all the movies we've only read about like one flew over cuckoo's nest or blow up or the brisky point or easy rider whatever so the um let's talk about why this was underground so this music of course is not officially available even if it's not actually sort of repressed so these events that you were putting on these discos where were they and how did you organize them if they were sort of underground or unofficial and what was there a risk in doing so? I mean, a risk from the authorities? Well, I can tell you that technically uh, and legally it was a, it was very uh, simple and, and very easy. I've had my discos at the Moscow State University at one of the cafes uh, in the main, uh, you know, this, this Stalinist skyscraper, the main building of the Moscow State University. So there was a cafe on the fourth floor, uh, and I've uh, I've organized my uh, my discotheques there, and there was absolutely no bureaucracy about that. You know, it was just like you know student leisure. But uh, after two years. Uh, the uh, the Komsomol bosses, Komsomol is Young Communist League, you know the the communist organization that supervised Russian young people. Uh, uh, some Komsomol functionaries came to my disco and uh, they said that you are playing Western music here, which is uh, which is not good, and uh, we demand that you submit uh, your whole repertoire. To us, uh, and uh, I said, "Okay, okay, I can, I can give you the list of artists. Okay, okay, I can give you even the list of songs that I play." And they said, "But we also need these lists in exactly in the consequence in which you play them, and uh, with short annotations of each song, so we could know what do they." sing about there and then i said no this i cannot this i cannot do so this is how i had to close down my disc after two years of its existence. so you you would have had to say take a a, a song like uh, a day in the life 
for instance, by the Beatles and sort of write Well, some... I didn't play the, A Day in the Life because it's not a dance song. Okay, but... Uh... <laughs> well, about A Day in the Life, I could... Well, I could, I could put there something... Uh, a song about alienation and and about traffic uh, accident in London, where a guy got <laughs> somebody blew his own head, yeah, yeah, blew yeah. his head off. Um, so you had to sort of try and ex- you were expected to do some exposition on a kind of uh, groovy dance tune. Yes, yes, yes. But so what could I? How uh, how? Could I put an annotation about, say, James Brown's sex machine or, or something? <laughs> you know, very would... <laughs> short annotation. Um, okay, so in parallel uh, uh, art, so you mentioned earlier that the Soviet, well, the young Russian bands at the time, they're the ones that are interested in sort of rock and roll and stuff, they're, they're actually all covers bands. They're all sort of imitating the Beatles and the Stones, playing uh, cover songs. At what point did you start? Yes, and very often they even didn't understand what they sang about because they they didn't speak English at all. So they've uh, they've just repeated these songs phonetically. Right. So at what point did, uh, like, if you like, an interesting original uh, young Soviet band start to emerge, or when did you start to notice them? Well, we've had uh, before before underground rock music. Uh, we've had a whole movement in the Soviet Union of the so-called bardic mm-hmm. songs. Amazing and stuff, yeah. uh, uh, these, these bards, yes, Galicin. they are what you call here singer-songwriters who sang uh, to acoustic guitars. Uh, their music was pretty primitive, but their voices were very interesting. And, and very powerful poetic all, lyrics. Yes, above all, they've had fantastic, fantastic lyrics. Uh, so they also uh, may be uh, called singing poets. And this whole movement started uh, more or less at the same time as this folk movement in in America, like Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, uh, John Bass, and so on, in the mid fifties. And uh, they became, well, some of them became hugely popular, like Vladimir Vysotsky, Alexander Galich, uh, Bulata Kujava. They've been darlings of the young intelligentsia. And uh, I think that uh, this generation of uh, singer-songwriters, they've influenced a lot uh, the first generation of Russian language rock bands. And here, I think the most important band and the most important author uh, was a band called Machine of Rimini, Time Machine, and their frontman and uh, main singer and lyricist uh, named Andrei Makarevich. He also played the lead guitar in the band. So, so uh, they've started to... to Oh, yes, in Leningrad, uh, the same role <coughs> uh, has been played by a band called Sankt Petersburg, led by Vladimir Rekshan, also a poet. He later became a professional novelist, also a poet and a singer and a guitarist. Uh, so the interesting thing about those songs was that uh, they were not protest songs. They were not political songs. I mean, comparing to Vysotsky or especially Galich, songs of uh, Machine of Rimini are really innocent. 
and there was uh, uh, there was no political or ideological agenda in them but uh, at the same time they were completely uh, in opposition to official soviet pop music because official soviet pop music including uh, the songs of so-called vocal instrumental ensembles which was like the the official form of rock music in the soviet union uh, in the late 60s and the 70s uh, these official pop songs you know they had to fully uh, uh, reflect uh, the official cultural doctrine, which is to be uh, optimistic, uh, life-affirming. Uh, of course, you know, there were also straight, straight songs about communist ideology and the party and Lenin and great patriotic war and so on. You can so write on. a pop song about that? Uh, well, we've had hundreds of pop songs uh, dedicated to ideological matters and some of them have, were written by really great composers and and uh, they may be heard even now because of their great melodies right uh, although of course their uh, lyrical content is totally outdated uh, so but uh, these songs uh, sorry but the songs of Machine Vremeni and similar bands they've been uh, they've been completely different because you know they've sang about frustrations of young people they sang about being lonely being alienated they sang about alcohol and even drugs and so on and this of course was absolutely unacceptable uh in the context of uh, official ideological doctrine so because of that uh, these bands have not been uh uh, uh, greeted by uh, by the official dom, they were never played on radio, let alone TV, and uh, sometimes in the in the toughest of times, in the beginning of the eighties, uh, you know, some of them got arrested and and even put to jail for. Well, of course, they couldn't officially put them to jail for for singing songs, but they put them to jail, say, for illegal commercial activities and, you know, things like that. I mean, we should also say that there'd also been this other huge uh, genre, I suppose, of, of Russian music, the Black Nye songs, you know, all that time, right the way back to the 20s, 30s, right? These sort of gulag songs, song, the yard songs, song songs, songs sung at home in the kitchens and in communal places, which were telling those stories of real life in the Soviet Union, the fighting, the criminal gangs, the uh, uh, the life in prison, love, passionate love stories. That had all been going on too, hadn't it? But com again, completely underground, right? Yes, this was also an underground phenomenon. And I think that they, uh, <laughs> you know, could... Uh, uh, that they would be underground in any other country. Like, uh, can you imagine, uh, say, American gangster rap being performed in the 40s or the 50s in America? I think that uh, that this is quite <laughs> unlikely. They would right. be uh, they will would be stopped by uh, by the police or FBI or or somebody. Yes, we did have uh, we did have these uh, these. Uh, criminal songs i would call them uh in uh, in in the soviet union the thing 
however, is that we were not interested in them at all. I mean, first of all, I liked the music. And uh, I was not, uh, you know, Time Machine, uh, they were not my favorite of Russian bands, although they, you know, they sang interesting songs. Uh, but uh, I wasn't a big fan of them simply because their music was very kind of traditional and very backwards. I mean, you know, they were like the Beatles. And at that time I've been listening to King Crimson and then to... Uh, Beef art and... The Clash and and Talking mm. Heads and so on. So, uh, so uh, I and most of my friends, we've been interested in music, first of all. So we didn't care much about lyrics and all these, and all these things. And if uh, and if I wanted a great, a brave uh, and provocative lyrics, then I'd rather listen to Galich and Vysotsky rather than uh, than rock bands. And the criminal songs, you know, they they belong to this criminal strata of the Soviet Union, and we, you know, we didn't really get along with them. I mean, I guess so it was like the... No I, I was not interested in this, in, in this part of the Soviet the musical underground at all. I suppose the best way to compare it um, in outside the Soviet Union was the kind of Narca Carrera songs, right, in Mexico, these, which is a, a big thing now, isn't it? Yeah. They're kind of like folk songs, but glorifying the, uh, the gang and the drug culture. Yes, yes, I think, I think this is uh, 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 an adequate parallel. So through the 70s and um, 80s, you do start to champion and write about the Soviet underground rock bands, didn't you? Yes, well, I've started, uh, well, of course, all my articles from uh, like the first five years of my journalistic careers, they all have been about Western music, not necessarily the music that I liked. Uh, because I also had to write articles on demand. So I wrote articles about Elton John and I wrote articles about, I don't know, ABBA and so on. Uh, but yes, in the very, at the very end of the 70s, I also started to write about my Russian rock friends from Moscow, from Leningrad, from Estonia and so on. And also at that time, I... I was involved in organizing uh, rock concerts and even big rock festivals. The biggest of them happened in the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi, in March uh, 1980. And this is still a legendary event called Russian Woodstock or whatever. So I was like the A&R person of, of this festival. And this was also the first time when underground rock bands like Machine Vremini, Aquarium, uh, Autograph and some others uh, performed legally before big audience and uh, they even released a double album, a double compilation album of bands of this festival, which was the first ever rock record produced in the Soviet Union. On Melodium? Yes, yes, of course. We've only had one label, a state monopoly called Melodia Records. But, I mean, how did that transition work from those bands being kind of underground and having to perform sort of, you know, semi-secret gigs, however popular they might be, how did that, how did they suddenly, okay, well, the authorities say, okay, let's have a festival and Artemi Trotsky is going to curate it? 
No, no, it wasn't done <laughs> in this way. It was, it was, uh, it was actually a private initiative between me and uh, my Georgian friends. Uh, I, I had a friend who, at that time, was serving as uh, the deputy head of the Belize uh, Philharmonic. And, and he was a jazz fan and also a rock fan, and we decided to make this festival. So it was, it was also a very risky venture. And uh, as I think now, the only reason why the authorities let this happen is because it was 1980, and this was the year of the Olympic Games in Moscow. So this festival has happened three months before the Olympics, and this was time uh, of a micro thaw. So uh, the authorities they wanted to show uh, to the rest of the world uh, that uh, you know Soviet Union is uh, is a cultural country and it's liberal country, and we even have rock festivals if you wanted. <laughs> so uh, if. Uh, if there were no Olympics, I'm not sure that uh, the whole thing could happen. So through the 80s, you carried on doing that, then you carried on actually organizing underground shows. And so, I mean, how did that work? I mean, it's because, you know, I know doing gigs and festivals, it's difficult to do it out of sight, you know. I mean, it's, but where do you play? How do you, you know, organize the tech and all that sort of stuff and get everybody there and advertise it and let people know? I mean, it's not a straightforward thing, is it, to put on any sort of show, any sort of festival, but if you're trying to do it out of sight of the authorities and hoping that they're not going to kind of turn up at the last minute and close it all down, I mean, how do you do that? Okay, well, there are several uh, ways of uh, organizing uh, concert activity in the Soviet Union in the, far, in the first half of the 80s. Of course, in the second half, we've had Perestroika and Glasnost and Gorby and so on, so the scene was completely different. The 80s was uh, a decade of stark contrast between the first five years and uh, the remaining five years. Uh, so, uh, the best situation was in the west of the Soviet Union, uh, and by that I mean uh, the Baltic republics, especially Estonia. In Estonia, they had the most liberal cultural uh, policies of all, because uh, in Estonia people saw uh, people could watch Finnish television. And Finnish television was also showing rock concerts, and uh, and Western movies and uh, you know things like that. So uh, uh, the cultural officials in Estonia they had somehow to adjust to it to cope with it, and they've and they've had a much more liberal approach to all all things Western than uh, than we've had it uh, in Russia, for instance. And then the second Western. Uh, pinnacle of uh, rock culture was the city of Leningrad, where in 1981 they have organized uh, the famous Leningrad Rock Club. This was the first rock club in the Soviet Union and uh, it has been curated by the KGB uh, and this was the only, the only uh, way to make it legal. And the KGB, of course, they have uh, made it possible simply because, uh, you know, they wanted to uh, watch closely this scene. 
but still, I think I think that this was a compromise in which KGB has lost the game. It was a yes, a cat and mouse game in which the cat has lost. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand. So the, K- the KGB is saying, okay, we, we'll we'll we're gonna help. But on put on this thing as a way of saying, well, let's get all these people out in the open so we can keep an eye on them and understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but of course, in doing so, they kind of opened the floodgates in some exactly, way. Exactly, exactly. Yes, you are absolutely, absolutely right. So Leningrad was the only city in Russia, in the Russian part of the Soviet Union, where they've had legal rock gigs at the Leningrad Rock Club. In Moscow, rock music like... Uh, in the first half of the 80s was banned completely. All the bands have been blacklisted, uh, not only from uh, public performances, but also from being played on the radio and even played at the discos. And at that time, we've had a plenty of discos already. And uh, they were also, of course, curated by the Ministry of Culture. So their repertoire was very strictly strictly followed by uh, by uh, the censorship uh, so what was uh, what were the possibility the possibility number one was called kvartirnik kvartirnik uh, means a, well kvartira in russia means apartment so they were apartment concerts right concerts at private flats concerts at country houses the duchess and so on. And this is uh, how rock music lived in Moscow from uh, like uh, 82 till the beginning of of 85. And uh, like I, for instance, I even organized whole uh, rock festivals at at my apartment (laughs) with like four to five bands playing, of course, with no electric instruments, only bongos and acoustic guitars, things like that, flutes, uh, fiddles. Uh, But, uh, you know, a whole band was was playing in my apartment, which wasn't that big, but, uh, well, big enough for maybe... 50 people to uh, to come to this festival. So you've got uh, four or five bands, 50 audience members, and I'm assuming that your neighbors were quite tolerant, were they then? Uh, well, my neighbors, uh, both uh, above and beyond, were my friends, and they were also present <laughs> <laughs> as an audience at these festivals. <laughs> Okay, so the, the, the underground's thriving in a sort of small way because you just carry on doing it out of sight wherever you can. And I'm, was this attended by the other sort of, you know, staples of, of rock concerts, uh, drink and drugs art? Was that part of the scene as well? Well, I would say that before, before the beginning of the 80s, uh, drugs were not a big uh, thing uh, in the Soviet underground. The real uh, drug invasion was uh, inspired and actually technically supplied by the Afghan war. Mm. When war in Afghanistan has started, uh, also a drug traffic uh, from Afghanistan uh, to Russia was uh, provided by officers, uh, by, you know, all kinds of war bureaucrats who came there and the back and 
and also by soldiers, uh, I believe for them all this was uh, big business. Before that, uh, before that, drugs were not a big thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, drinks and alcohol, yes. Well, for Russians, alcohol is uh, is a religion, and uh, and of course, you know, I cannot imagine Russian underground, be it a political underground or musical underground or a literary underground, without lots of booze. <laughs> uh, this was uh, sure. Uh, this was all. Obligatory. Obligatory, obligatory, yeah. Um, you mentioned that the last second half of the uh, 80s was very different, and um, let's just talk a little bit about why and how. Um, I know that uh, your friend and uh, the extraordinary uh, Sergei Kuryokin and Pop Mechanica were part of that, weren't they? The sort of second half of the 80s in Leningrad-based art provocateur, and it seems to me that something very different was going on with uh, Kuryokin and Pop Mechanica, because this felt completely original in some way. It wasn't derivative, and um, it wasn't particularly lyrical. It was organized chaos or something, wasn't it? I mean, like a, it was like this Dadaist in intervention. Just tell us briefly about Karyokin, because he was a good friend of yours, wasn't he? Yes, well, uh, I would say that in the 80s, there was a whole bunch of geniuses uh, which Russian musical underground has produced. For me, the two main uh the the two most talented people and real real geniuses were two guys one is alexander Beslachov, who was a poet a poet well a rock bard a passionate rock bard but above all a great poet a poet of the same caliber as uh, as pushkin lermontov yesenian maikovsky and so on he has committed suicide in uh, 1988 and this guy was uh, was absolutely out of this world the second uh, incredible personality and uh, great musician was sergey kuryokin who you've uh, uh, just uh, talked about uh, he was basically a jazz piano player and he came to the world of, well, I wouldn't call it rock, to the world of musical performance from the world of avant-garde jazz. And uh, he has created uh, this conceptual musical monster called Popularnaya Mechanica, Pop Mechanics, uh, which uh, didn't have a single uh, similar concert in their whole career and the career was quite long maybe four or five years uh, each time they've played it was something completely different and Kuryokin has improvised not only musically but he improvised with musicians with style with environment and so on so for the performances of, of pop mechanica uh, he could uh, invite uh, pop singers all kinds of, of folk ensembles, classical musicians, ballet dancers, animals, uh, animals like goats and circus actors and so on. So I would say that uh, uh, that uh, that probably the uh, closest uh, thing to pop mechanica is circus. 
but circus is entertainment. And Pop Mechanica was <laughs> was quite scary, I would say. <laughs> provocative, yeah. yeah. Uh, provocative, yeah. Uh, paradoxal, uh, but still kind of circus-like. And all this has been conducted uh, by Sergei Kuryukin, who occasionally played piano, but mostly he was just running around uh, the stage uh, like uh, like a classical director, uh, saying now now you play now you play and you do this and you do that and so on. So so this was this was like uh, like a multi uh, multi style. Uh, Performance art, uh, uh, performance art, cabaret. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a multimedia because at that time, you know, the videos mm. and such mm. things they were not available. But uh, yes, it was. Uh, well, there is a popular musical style called minimalism. So this was opposite of minimalism. This was maximalism. maximalism yeah, yeah, we did it. We did a show with actually with Olivia Lichtenstein who. Um, oh yes, made I remember her. Yeah, yeah, and uh, about about Sergei in detail. There was one particular incident which I wanted to ask you about, which I think happened after Paris Perestroika, but it seemed quite significant and maybe, uh, I think, uh, important in some way. Which is tell us about how Kuryokin perpetrated this. Fraud slash, uh, you know, con on the public by claiming that Lenin was a mushroom. Yes, well, this was a TV show uh, done by Sergei Sholokhov. Uh, so he has once invited uh, Mr. Kuryokhin and I think also Mr. Gribinshikov, a rock man and the frontman of Aquarium, one of the most popular Russian rock bands, and a friend of Kuryokhin's because. Kuryokhin used to play also in aquarium for two or three years, played keyboards there. And uh, this was, I think this was 80, 89 or 1990. Yes, and Kuryokhin, who, well, who was uh, a genius provocator, generally, uh, he came up with a theory uh, that Vladimir Lenin was actually a mushroom, a mushroom-type creature. And uh, Kurokin was a very good actor. So he would say the most incredible, the most ridiculous things with a, 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 a stony face. You know, he was like Buster Keaton. Uh, and so he was uh, proving uh, with all kinds of pictures, graphics and so on, uh, presenting them uh, to the camera, that Lenin was a mushroom. And this was very, very, very popular uh, uh, concept, uh, which immediately became uh, legendary in the Soviet Union. Some people were uh, worrying about that and were totally infuriated. Uh, no, but minute. they were a minority, but most most people found it uh, really funny. So um, people were infuriated because they found it insulting to Lenin. But was, there was also possibly a small minority, but there was also um, uh, a sizable proportion of people who thought it was true, though, no? No, I don't think that there were so. any people who thought that this, <laughs> that this is true, well, except for uh, maybe the worst, uh, you know, the clinical morons. Uh, 
But of course, well, the sad, uh, the sad paradox is that uh, a few years after that, uh, Sergei Kuryokin also became a member and a spokesman for the nationalist Bolshevik party. Uh, well, I don't know how they, <laughs> how he could uh, uh, excuse uh, his anti-Leninist uh, provocations on on TV, but uh, yes, later later he turned to be a Bolshevik himself. The, 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 the amazing thing about that, though, of course, is that it shows what how much had changed that you could actually have a TV show where a, a musician could appear and even say something like that about uh, Lenin, right, that he was a mushroom, it, you know, and not be immediately dragged off and sent to the gulag. I mean, things had changed, didn't they? I mean, what was that like for you to watch that dramatic five-year period where... You know, Perestroika and Glasnost came, and how did it affect the musical underground? Well, it didn't affect the musical underground uh, in the creative way, I would say, uh, because uh, uh, all the bands uh, who who have flourished under uh, Perestroika years, they've been the bands who've started in the late 70s or the uh, the early 80s. So they've been doing the same thing, and I was doing the same thing. The difference was that before we've been doing it for a few people operating uh, uh, like secret agents in the underground, and later, you know, like I've done this uh, Chernobyl benefit concert, uh, you know, at the main Olympic Hall of Moscow, co-hosting it with Alla Pugacheva, the biggest ever Russian pop star and so on. But it was the same thing and, and the same people and this, uh, the same uh, same music, uh, more or less. And of course, uh, of course, you know, both uh, the Soviet times and the Putin times, uh, they, uh, you know, they make uh, th- those uh, free and liberal years uh, seem uh, absolutely un- unbelievable. You know that in the 90s, uh, I was the head of music at uh, at uh, TV channel called Russia, which was the second biggest national state-owned TV channel. And uh, I was the head of music programming there. Uh, which is <laughs> which sounds absolutely unbelievable these days and i've had uh, regular like weekly or monthly tv shows there on experimental music for instance or jazz or uh, we've had a, a program called world village uh, which was about all kinds of exotic folkloric and ethnic music so uh or or programs on uh, academic uh, contemporary music and all kinds of electroacoustic experiments and so on. I mean, you know, I've really tried to make it uh, as culturally varied as and stylistically varied as as possible. Nothing like uh, that exists on on Russian TV anymore. Well, I mean, it's interesting. So, what you're saying about the perestroika years and uh, you know the end of the end of the Soviet crumbling of the Soviet Empire. So, the underground goes overground briefly. You know, these the bands that you were involved with, uh, Aquarium and Kino, uh, and you know, Kirokin's becoming a huge star. I um, mean, or a huge celebrity, partly because of the mushroom thing. But um, 
And then uh, there's this period, another thaw, I suppose, before uh, things change. When I met you, uh, I don't know if you remember this, actually, but um, I think the first time we met in Russia, when I interviewed you, um, you had a radio show and you took a call partway through the interview from, I think, the boss of the radio station and he was telling you that you were no longer allowed to play Ukrainian bands. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. During yes, the time of the I Ukrainian fight, uh, conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think, well, shit happens. <laughs> you got you got sacked from your job at the university. You got your TV uh, yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your TV well, show got taken away. Yes, of course. Well, uh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that uh, that Russia has made a, a a full circle and and came back, uh, not not even to Brezhnev's, but rather to Stalinist times. I mean, what's happening now under Putin? You know, you may call it. Uh, uh, Stalinism light. I mean, there's uh, there's no millions of people in the gulag, but still uh, several hundreds of political prisoners. The censorship is back in town, and uh, unlike unlike in the Brezhnev times, which were kind of, of course. Uh, uh, stupid and nasty and uh, and uh, uh, old-fashioned, uh, but at least they were quiet. Now, in Putin's Russia is aggressive, and uh, all this propaganda of patriotism and expansion, and uh, uh, that we have to promote traditional values all over the world and so on, this wasn't the case uh, under Brezhnev. I mean, you know, they simply, uh, you know, they wanted to die quietly. And these guys, unfortunately, they they want, uh, you know, to go further. And that's, uh, and that's I think, very dangerous. So um, a cultural censorship is back, maybe a, with different applications. So obviously you can stop people being seen on TV or being on the media. You can stop the funding for theatre and all that sort of stuff. That's the way to do it these days, economic uh, censorship. But in terms of, let's finish off, I mean, let's. where is the music under, musical underground now in Russia? I mean, it's a time, you're saying, of, uh, of, of cultural censorship and political uh, repression and stuff like that. So is there now a musical underground in Russia and what is it? Where is it? Well, I would say that uh, there is no musical underground in the true old Soviet sense of the word. Uh, I would rather say that there is a musical ghetto right now. There are artists uh, which uh, are benefiting from the existing regime, which are always on TV, on radio and so on which are financed uh, by by the state which uh, participate in all kinds of official actions like you know olympic games all kinds of uh, of uh, festivities in the red square and and, and so on and there is uh, and there is a, a faction of the musical scene which only exists uh, in uh, small clubs and uh, the internet and YouTube. And uh, this is the 
new underground of Russian music. It's it's very varied. It's not only rock music. It's rock music. It's it's a lot of rap and hip hop. It's very political, much more political than it used to be in the Soviet times. And uh, of course, uh, you could never ever uh, see or hear these artists uh, uh, at official level, but they do exist. Uh, there was there <clears throat> there were some attempts uh, uh, to uh, oppress, um, maybe to destroy uh, these. Uh, underground activities at the end of 2018 there's been uh, uh, several bands uh, bands on uh, several bands and hip-hop acts uh, when police forces stopped concerts blocked clubs and so on and uh, uh, some very good groups like I Speak, for instance, or Pornefilme, or rapper nicknamed Husky, and so on, they have been stopped from uh, performing. But very soon, uh, the authorities understood that this is absolutely, absolutely uh, stupid and counterproductive, because they've stopped, for instance, 200 people from going to an ice peak concert but at the same time 40 million people watched their video there's no more death you know the the, the legendary russian video of of, of nowadays and uh, therefore they decided they decided uh, to kind of calm down the, uh, the situation. So last year in 2019, I cannot recall much, uh, much uh, scandalous situations with music, but, uh, you know, they're pushed, they're pushed into a corner, a rather dark and, uh, and unpromoted corner of the, <laughs> of the musical uh, reality but uh, they do exist and they feel well and uh, and they keep being uh, bold uh, young provocative and uh, and i think the number of uh, audience for these bands is only growing thanks to mr putin and uh, and his fascist policy and a little bit to Mr. Trotsky and his radio station, which I'm going to link to uh, in the notes for this. Um, so there you have it. The Russian underground is alive and twitching. Yes, yes, yes. I think uh, I think that Russian. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it necessarily underground. I would say that Russian opposition music is now is now alive and well and in a good form, and it's not only created by a young radical artists but uh, i think that a lot of uh, uh, a lot of talented uh, classic rockers uh, from uh, the 70s and the 80s are also in good form now and uh, i'm very happy for these guys and we are very happy for them too and very happy to hear from artemy trotsky thank you art and thank you to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Another story from the counterculture. We'll be back next time with even more. Uh, you can check us out in the meantime. www.bureauofloscultura.com
see ya.